it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. So pleased that you're listening. Thank you for doing so. Every weekday... Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, that's when we air. If you can't listen live, there's a podcast for that available at GuyBensonShow.com along with a lot of other content or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Lots of options. We do appreciate it. On social media, you can follow us there as well. Some bonus content from time to time at GuyBensonShow. Easy enough. On Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Here's our lineup today. Josh Krasauer, political analyst from Axios and a Fox News contributor. He'll be here later on this hour. Katie Pavlich, my friend and colleague, in the next hour, along with Matt Finn, who is in Idaho covering this quadruple murder at the University of Idaho that has now been a story for a little over a month. Just awful. We have not talked about it here But the fact that they have gotten seemingly nowhere in the investigation weeks later is pretty haunting. We will get the latest from Matt Finn in our middle hour. In our final hour, former acting secretary at DHS Chad Wolf will be here on the border crisis. A huge national story that we absolutely have been covering quite a lot, including just yesterday. Chad Wolf, I will pick his brain about... Title 42, the expiration, the impending expiration thereof, what can be done, what will be done. Unfortunately, I feel like what will be done is probably nothing, at least if this administration has anything to do with it, and they're the ones calling the shots. So a very busy schedule ahead here on today's program. As we come on the air, I would like to play for you a soundbite from a ceremony at the White House yesterday. And we talked about it as it was happening. I had it on sort of in the studio, off to the side. I had the TV on mute. And I saw that President Biden and a number of other prominent Democrats, and I think they had some celebrities there as well. Cindy Lauper performed. Sam Smith, I think, performed. It was the signing of the Bipartisan Respect for Marriage Act on the South Lawn of the White House. And there was a huge crowd gathered there. I mentioned that my husband was there to celebrate that passage. I had written in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act. I had talked about it here on the show, discussed it with several members of Congress on and off the air, very transparent about my views on it, why I think it was worthwhile, why I also thought it wasn't completely perfect in every way. So I was pleased that it passed. I was grateful to those who helped pass it, including especially the, I believe the number is 61 Republican members of Congress in the House and the Senate, who voted for one or both versions of this bill. And it is not an exaggeration to say that without the support of 12 Republicans in the Senate, or at least 10 of them, it would not have become law. You needed Republican votes. They improved the bill, in my opinion, in the Senate. It got a dozen Republican votes there, dozens of votes on the House side, 
uh, from Republicans. And there were, based on what I heard, I asked Adam about it, he was there, very few references to the Republicans who helped make this happen. It was sort of treated like a big Democratic achievement. Pelosi spoke, Schumer, Kamala, Grandpa Joe, the whole thing. And I get it, you know, it's politics, but this was a moment where you could have seen not just theoretical bipartisanship, but literal bipartisanship coming together to get this done. And Mr. Unity, Joe Biden, President Unity, who said a big part of his mandate from voters in 2020 was to bring us together and heal some of the divides and the wounds. Of course, he's been terrible at that. In fact, he has been extremely divisive on a whole host of issues from so-called voting rights and voter suppression and the Jim Crow demagoguery to abortion. I mean, you go down any culture war issue, this guy has been an angry culture warrior, an aggressor in a lot of cases, doing really extreme radical stuff as well and getting sort of gruff and ill with anyone who questions him. He has done the opposite of sort of the kindly, moderate guy that he tried to sell himself as and did successfully to an electorate that was tired, just enough people, tired of Donald Trump and all the drama and some of the rancor. Well, we've had a lot of drama and rancor and failure and scandal and crisis under this guy. And here's a chance yesterday for him to bring folks together, talk about the bipartisanship, talk about the great progress, give credit across the aisle and all of that sort of stuff. And instead, at one point, he was railing about the abortion agenda that the Democrats have. And let me tell you, I know that there were conservatives at that ceremony. There were actually quite a few of them, dozens of whom I would say I know personally, Republicans and conservatives who were there to say we are happy that the Respect for Marriage Act has been passed. We are here to applaud and honor the people who made it happen right, left, and center, and they were not there to have some big left-wing festival to cheer on a limitless taxpayer-funded abortion regime that Joe Biden has grotesquely embraced. He didn't always believe these things. In fact, until very recently, he didn't. But he has leaned hard into that extremism because I think that's kind of what you have to do these days at the upper echelons of the Democratic Party in the eyes of the activist base, in the eyes of the donor class. That's what you have to do. And President Catholic has more than happily done that, along with Speaker Catholic. I mean, these people do a lot of questioning of other people's faith. They do it cheaply and routinely. I'm not going to say that Speaker Pelosi or President Biden aren't Catholics. I will say on that issue of life, They are way out of step with the teachings of the church that they talk so much about. I mean, that's undeniable. And to use a moment, again, that could have been a platform for unity and bipartisan agreement and to just inject the abortion extremism, that is going to be directly off-putting and alienating to a lot of the people who helped make the moment possible and people who were there to celebrate it. You can be in favor of this backstop on same-sex marriage, and I've written about it, I've talked about it. I don't think it's a necessary bill because I don't think the Obergefell decision is going anywhere at the Supreme Court level. This is like a backup plan that wouldn't really trigger into actual effect 
unless Supreme, the Supreme Court were to reverse itself, which I think is extremely unlikely, and I've explained why. But there are people who are there to say, okay, this is good. We're glad the legislative branch has done something about this in a way that is, I would say, modest, reasonable, constitutional. They aren't there. Some of the activists are. Some of the left-wingers, some of the Democrats would love to hear you know, sermons about abortion wherever they go. But other people weren't there for that. And sort of like it's a, oh, this isn't really a moment for you. This is a moment for us. He was also knocking the Supreme Court, attacking the Supreme Court, like, oh, we did this because the Supreme Court extremists had their Dobbs decisions. Like, well, imagine that. The Supreme Court making it so that, at least on the abortion issue, elected representatives have to actually do their jobs and wrestle with these questions themselves rather than just creating inventing a non-existent right, as they did in Roe versus Wade. And while I don't think Obergefell is in any danger of even being challenged in a serious way, let alone overturned, if it encouraged or catalyzed a moment where Congress said, hey, we're legislators, let's legislate, and they came up with something good, then that's fine. It's just a weird moment to rail against another branch of government, but I guess that's what Joe does. And he can't help himself. President Unity is anything but. And yesterday was another example of that. And I just want to play a soundbite from Biden's speech yesterday. I didn't see it when it happened. I hadn't really paid much attention to it other than to note on the air it was happening. Then over dinner, I was talking about the experience with Adam and what did he think of it and so on and so forth. And I saw this clip circulating. I wrote about it today for townhall.com for this afternoon, here was Biden. One of the things that he said in his remarks preceding the signature that he affixed to this legislation, cut 23, listen especially at the end here. Justice Thomas went even further, and he wrote the following quote. We should reconsider all the court's substantive due process presidents, including Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, That means he thinks we should reconsider whether you've got the right access to to contraception. And yes, we should reconsider whether you have the right to marry who you love. And that's not only the challenge ahead. When a person can be married in the morning and thrown out of a restaurant for being gay in the afternoon, this is still wrong. Okay, so... Let's set aside his comments about Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas did have his own separate concurrence. He was not speaking for the other justices. It has raised concerns about what the court could do. You need four justices just to take a case, and it seems crystal clear they would not have those four to take an Obergefell challenge, and certainly not five to overturn the case. So let's not mislead people with fears that aren't realistic, first of all. Secondly, you caught the end there, I hope. Biden painting this picture of a country. Oh, a person can be married in the morning and then thrown out of a restaurant for being gay in the afternoon. What the hell is he talking about? I have good news for you, Grandpa Joe. Whatever country you're describing there, it's not the United States of America. That's not a thing that happens. Let me speak from experience. You don't get thrown out of restaurants just for being gay. I don't know what this scenario is, this 
new example of grievance that he's trying to raise in this context. I don't know where this came from, but it sounds like he's got some vision in his brain that, let's say, two guys go and get married in the morning somewhere. Then they go to a restaurant to celebrate, and the major d' comes over and says, oh, no, you appear to be homosexuals. Get out. Like, no. Total fantasy. Maybe a long time ago, sure. These days, it's just not a thing that happens. I understand that it's sort of dogma on the left that progress can never be declared complete or over, or even really like substantially nearing completion. You always have to genuflect about how the work has only begun, right? No matter how many wins you notch, no matter how much progress is actually made, the work has only just begun, always. I'm not saying that the work on a more perfect union on this issue or any others is complete. I'm not making that argument. But if you're going to try to check the box and pander to certain elements of this crowd in the audience to acknowledge, like, yeah, no, I'm down with the cause, and of course, progress, we're not even close. There's still so much to do. At least give an example that bears any resemblance to everyday reality in the United States of America. It is not true that gay people get thrown out of restaurants just for being gay. If that happened and it weren't someone looking for attention and coming up with a hoax, because we have had a few of those, if this were to happen for real, that would be a huge national story, even if it happened once in some random incident. We'd have a big, angry conversation about it. I haven't seen any significant example of that, let alone some systemic thing where LGBT people are being dismissed from restaurants because of their identity. And yet that is what the President of the United States claimed is happening in this country. It is so irresponsible. It is so very much the opposite of unity and bringing people together. It is sowing fear based on unrealistic fairy tales to keep people angry and agitated and worried. I do wonder how many lefties in that crowd stood there and thought to themselves, standing out in the cold, yeah, that's, ugh, that's not really happening. So the good news for the president, apparently he doesn't know, is that we are not a country where a gay couple can go get married in the morning and then get thrown out of a restaurant just for being gay later that day. We are, however, a country where a conservative can be thrown out of a restaurant for being conservative. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, former White House spokeswoman under President Trump, she was famously asked to leave. They wouldn't serve her at a restaurant in Virginia because of her beliefs and her ties to the Trump White House. And a lot of people stood and applauded. Good for them. Truth to power. That is great courage. She shouldn't be able to dine. Don't give them any space. We can't normalize these people, right? Remember that. Maybe you'd forgotten. I didn't forget. You can get kicked out of restaurants, kicked out of your job, kicked out of basically anything these days if you're not vaccinated. In COVID, I am pro-vaccine, but some of the mandates and the nasty retribution against people who wouldn't immediately comply in every single way. 
We had a guest on this week who lost her whole career on Broadway because of this. You can get kicked out for that. That's not some sort of fever dream that Grandpa Joe dreamed up. That is real. What if you're a conservative Christian organization? You sure as hell can get thrown out of a restaurant. Just happened in Northern Virginia. I think it was in Richmond a couple weeks ago. A Christian organization was going to hold a dinner or a fundraiser at a popular restaurant in Richmond, Virginia. And some people on the wait staff said, this makes us unsafe because these people are anti-LGBT and they are anti-woman and anti-choice and blah, blah, blah. And so, like, the day of the event, the restaurant kicked the group out, canceled the event, and put out a big statement, performative statement about how they were standing up for all that's righteous and good in the world by throwing these bigots to the curb or whatever. And the usual suspects all just waved the pom-poms, the blue pom-poms, good, good, good. Truth to power. Give these bigots no quarter. Progress. You can get thrown out of establishments for what you believe in this country. You're not getting thrown out just because you're gay, no matter what the president might say. Just take the grievance mongering and put it on hold for one day. Do the actual unifying bipartisan thing for one day, Mr. President. Couldn't do it. And I can't say I'm surprised. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We mentioned this a couple days ago on the show, so I wanted to just bring an update that soccer journalist Grant Wall, who died in Qatar, covering the World Cup, his wife, who's a prominent New York City physician, put out a statement about the cause of death. Quote, an autopsy was performed in New York City. Grant died from the rupture of a slowly growing, undetected, ascending aortic aneurysm. The chest pressure he experienced shortly before his death may have represented the initial symptoms. No amount of CPR or shocks would have saved him. She says there was nothing nefarious about his death. So I know there were people questioning it, and they want an investigation. It sounds like that's pretty definitive. What a horrible thing. He was young and beloved among soccer fans in the U.S. Grant Wall, rest in peace. An update on his cause of death there from his wife. We'll return after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here. It's our online home, and the podcast is free every day. Pleased to welcome back to the show Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, hello to you. 
Hey, Guy, great to be back on the show. I want to start with a topic that we touched on yesterday to open the show. And I was going to ask you about it anyway, but now we have another data point. So yesterday we saw that USA Today Suffolk poll about the 2024 election, and it had Ron DeSantis leading Donald Trump in a hypothetical head-to-head by 23 points in a Republican primary. Of course, a big caveat being it's not a head-to-head. It's probably going to be a multi-candidate race. We don't even know if DeSantis is going to run. I suspect he will, but we, you know, there's only one declared candidate. That's Trump. But if it came down to those two... It was a 23-point lead for DeSantis. DeSantis had a head-to-head lead, hypothetically, against Biden. Trump was trailing Biden by seven points. And people were sort of ooing and eyeing about that. A two-to-one margin. Republican voters said, we want someone who will carry on Trump's policies, but it needs to be someone new. I mean, it was an interesting poll. Uh, and we'd seen some polling movement in that direction. Then today, we get a Wall Street Journal survey Uh, That was conducted at least partially by Trump's own chief pollster from 2022, and it found something very similar. 52 to 38 would be the head-to-head, DeSantis versus Trump in a Republican primary. 14-point lead uh, for DeSantis, momentum uh, for the Florida governor. And I just think it's, of course, preposterously early to take any of these polls overly seriously. It's not even Christmas of 2022 yet. We've just closed the book on the last election. But in terms of some of the trend lines and maybe a mood shift among the Republican electorate, it definitely looks like there is a more robust appetite to move on from Trump among a lot more Republican voters than there perhaps ever has been over these last six years. I'm not sure if that sticks. I don't know if we're having a very different conversation a year from now. But at least for the moment, it strikes me as notable. Guy, it goes beyond the polls. I mean, President Trump made a big announcement right after the midterm elections at Mar-a-Lago, and he got one one Republican, Congressman Madison Cawthorn, to show up for that event and really hasn't done any true campaign events ever since that moment. He hasn't taken advantage of of that window where he's the only Republican running for president in in 2024. It's been a very, uh, dare I say, lackluster, low-energy schedule for the former president. So that, I think, is what we're seeing reflected in in, in these polling numbers. And it's not just these two polls, but it's been a pattern ever since um, the the end of the midterm elections. Uh, The one number I would look at that, that I keep a close eye on is in that USA Today Suffolk poll, Trump's favorability rating with Republicans is at 60, it's under 70%, it's at 64%, which to me is sort of the Mendoza line of where Trump needs to be to have a good chance of winning the, the, the nomination. If, if, if Even after January 6th, most of the national polls showed Trump still getting 70 plus percent of Republican voters, and that USA Today poll shows them under that, that 70% mark. So I thought that was notable. The, the Wall Street Journal poll shows them a little bit above 70, so that is a number I'm going to be keeping a close eye on. I also would caution that even though Trump's fortunes have taken a hit lately, uh, he still leads Mike Pence in a head-to-head matchup, according to the Wall Street Journal poll, by you know, 35, 40 points. So it's yeah, a, 35 points. DeSantis, it's important to remember that DeSantis has a uniquely formidable coalition that, bring, that he would bring to bear against Trump. It's not just anti-Trump Republicans or, or people who kind of are skeptical of Trump, but he would actually eat into the, the polling shows. He would eat into that Trump base and, and be viewed as much more uh, of a winner, uh, whereas a lot of these other Republican candidates are not 
uh, looking like the, even even Trump's own vice president, but I think a lot of the other Republicans mentioned might not be able to fit that bill. Uh, so like, and that's why DeSantis, I mean, DeSantis is playing his cards very, very, very shrewdly because he's not fighting with Trump. He's not commenting on that uh, you know dinner with Kanye and Nick Fuentes at Mar-a-Lago. He's you know trying to get to Trump's right, arguably, when it comes to dealing with COVID. And he had this uh, sort of press conference yesterday announcing he's going to have sort of a counter a counter CDC in Florida where they're going to investigate vaccines and other public health measures over the last couple of years. You know, so it looks like DeSantis understands that to beat Trump, you can't just be the anti-Trump. You're going to have to eat up some of that MAGA coalition. And he, he looks like a very formidable candidate if he chooses to get in. Well, and that's why Donald Trump was attacking him preemptively in a series of pretty embittered public statements not that long ago. Now, the problem is, you know, from Trump's perspective, DeSantis, who wants to come in and say, hey, we've got to win, he just won Florida by almost 20 points, which is just an unheard of margin, but he did it. And he's turned that state significantly redder. And in the meantime, you've got, you know, DeSantis basking in the afterglow of that victory. You've got Trump making an announcement for president that really didn't get all that much excitement or fanfare or, or people getting all fired up. And then he's been hanging out at Mar-a-Lago. He had that extremely ill-advised dinner with those, uh, that group of people, Kanye and his bigoted hangers-on. He put out the truth social statements about terminating parts of the Constitution. He wants you know the 2020 election done over or just to be reinstalled as president. It's just like kind of delusional stuff. That's what voters have seen from him in these last couple of weeks. And shock of all shocks, it hasn't been terribly appealing beyond the people who will always love Trump no matter what. And I still hear from them. They still exist, and they're still a formidable force within the party. And, you know, I think when you look at the the pie, if you will, of Republican support, if Trump has a third of the pie no matter what, then you get into the conversation about if there's a bunch of other people trying to get their own slice of the pie, a third of the pie is going to win. But if it's a third versus a consolidation around someone else, and it probably won't be someone who is viewed as anti-Trump or that doesn't have the broad support and passionate support of a large element of the base. But if there's a compelling alternative who people can rally around, then the conversation changes. I mean, there's no question about that. And there was a detail in this Wall Street Journal write-up, Josh, of this of this story and the poll I will point out, same exact poll today from the Wall Street Journal has Joe Biden's approval rating at 42% approval, 56% disapproval. That's a bad number, and yet he still narrowly leads Donald Trump in a head-to-head potential rematch because Trump is less popular still than the unpopular Joe Biden. People might be wondering, okay, if the alternative is going to be DeSantis, if this guy is going to run for president, and, you know, have an opportunity to take on Trump and just see what happens. I think it'd be a very rocky road for everyone involved, but, it, you know, it could be fascinating. Well, when would he do that? Because Trump's already declared it's almost a month ago that he did it. And the Wall Street Journal reports that based on things that aides have said, people in DeSantis' world, Ron DeSantis is not planning to make an announcement of that sort, yes or no, on 2024, until after the Florida legislative session which doesn't end until May of next year. So we could be like half a year away still from a potential DeSantis announcement, Josh. At that point, if he gets in, Trump will have been in the race for seven months already. Yeah, so I've heard the same 
timeline from sources close to DeSantis that he's very unlikely to make any announcement before that that legislative session. And I, you know, I, I think that's smart on, on the governor's part because he's trying to show he can govern. He wants to show that he can accomplish things, have a record to run on, and he doesn't want to get into a one-on-one with, with, with Donald Trump as long as he can. I do, though, think that Look, when you look at the polls, DeSantis is sort of the the dream figure for anyone who doesn't like Trump, anyone who wants to move on, right? Even pro-Trump Republicans who want to move on. He's the guy that everyone latches on to, the moderates, the somewhat conservatives, even even a handful of the MAGA Republicans who who want to win her. Um, But the problem is once he goes one-on-one with Trump and once Trump engages him, uh, those numbers are going to change. I think even more significantly, Guy – once other Republicans like Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley and the whole rest of prospective candidates jump in, DeSantis is going to that, – that number is going to shrink because they're, they're going to eat up a lot of the DeSantis kind of pragmatic Republican vote. And DeSantis is going to have to make a tough choice I think at some point. Does, does he position himself as sort of the true MAGA Republican going forward, or does he try to continue to hold on to the, some of the Trump skeptical voters? You know, he has everyone right now who doesn't, who isn't one of the hardcore Trump supporters. But he's going to have to make some choices going forward, and I think it's some risk for DeSantis as well because, you know, we saw the results in 2022. It wasn't just Trump who lost. Trump, Trump certainly was a loser in that his candidates did poorly. But they were the candidates who ran too far to the right, who were a little seen as too extreme, underperformed pretty badly. And if DeSantis takes that route to win the primary, I don't know if he's going to be doing much better than Trump in the end in the general election because that it's not just Trump himself. It's sort of this this and look. I think I've said DeSantis has been brilliant in many ways in terms of capturing issues that the majority of Floridians agree on, even if the media thinks he's crazy, right? Like the vaccine yep. mandates and yep. the the inappropriate curriculum in schools. I'm a little, you know, I'm a little, I'm watching this whole um, questioning the efficacy of vaccines totally, uh, a little skeptically. And, you know, I think that's, you know, if he feels like he needs to get even further to Trump's right to to win over some of that base, I think that's a big warning sign, big picture, because the way Republicans win writ large is by not just rejecting Trump, but trying to move a little more towards the, you know, what Glenn Youngkin did in Virginia, trying to be appealing to the center-right independents, people who may like Trump but want a new, new, new course and don't want to, cater to every, every base issue possible. Yeah, and so I mean it's going to be a needle to thread. I think it makes sense for DeSantis if he's going to wait until after the legislative session, he would want to rack up a number of high-profile victories. He'll have big Republican majorities in Tallahassee to help him do that, build like a full head of steam of momentum. He'll have been waiting and sort of watching and keeping an eye on what Trump's been up to and other Republicans have been up to for let's say, you know, 6-7 months. And then he could try to, you know, time his announcement if he decides to run as strategically as possible and then sort of see how he's going to explode onto the scene, how he'll try to split the difference of being, you know, a torch carrier of the MAGA movement just without some of the baggage of Trump, but also with an eye towards some of the pragmatism that actually helped him. You don't win reelection in Florida, let alone by 20 points without being pragmatic and appealing to a lot of people who are not the hardcore base. He managed to do that in this huge state, and you know he's got some room here to sort of breathe, wait, watch, look, develop more of a record in Florida, and then maybe come out of the gates you know, really swinging, having posted some more of those you know, conservative Ws in a primary. Uh, and you know him getting off to the right uh, in a primary is, is probably something that he'll have to do in a number of respects. But the question is, can he tack 
back more pragmatic and, and have more of a unifying general election theme if he somehow becomes the Republican nominee for president, getting way ahead of ourselves. All I can say is we saw what he did in Florida. Those results speak for themselves. And it's certainly one of the more interesting things cert- talked about in, like in political circles in Washington, uh, Washington D.C. and beyond, especially as some of these polls have been cropping up. And two of them in two days, double digits, you know, that's why I think a lot of folks are talking about it. Quickly, Josh, a couple other issues. Number one, I see that there are a number of Democratic senators playing hot potato with becoming DSCC chair for the next cycle. This would be the person sort of in the Senate in charge of getting uh, Democratic senators elected. They had a very good year this year in spite of everything. Um, but no one wants the gig for 2024 because the map is really bad. At some point, someone's got to take the job, though, right? Someone does. And this is the worst map. I mean, the worst on paper environment uh, or landscape that Republic or that Democrats have had in a long time. You've literally got tw- about a good couple dozen Democratic health seats that are up, including West Virginia, Ohio, Montana. Uh, these are all going to be, you know, tilting in the in the Republican direction. If they Arizona could be interesting. You got, then you got then you got Sinema's issue in Arizona. You've got Nevada. You got Pennsylvania. I mean, the, the only Democratic or sorry, the only Republican Senate seat that may even remotely be vulnerable is Rick Scott's in Florida, and I think he'll be fine. Um, it, it's ten seats the Republicans are defending, almost all in red states. So this is a, a map that you know. This could be a very, very big, big, big election for the Senate Republicans. That's why they were hoping to, to get the majority this year so they could get close to 60. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen now because of the setbacks this year. But they certainly are well positioned to get, get a majority if they get good candidates and that they take advantage of, of the red territory that they're running in. Yeah, and I think some of these Democrats are like, hey, do you want to be chairman of, of this uh, campaign operation in two years? Like, ooh. Uh, how about how about no? Maybe give that one to someone who's retiring. But it's sort of interesting watching them uh, all trying to slip away from that one. You can't really blame them. Just the map itself, as you say, looks pretty brutal. Lastly, I asked a few different guests about this yesterday. I'm curious what you're hearing in the sense of the state of play that that you've ascertained through your reporting, Josh. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, what's the status here in terms of where he needs to be to get the votes to become speaker? Sounds like he's not there yet. I'm just, I'm not sure if I really buy into the fact that he's really at risk. I feel like some of this is kind of like play acting and, uh, you know, token opposition for now, but you know, maybe not. When will we know if he's in trouble or whether he'll be fine? Well, we may know, uh, and certainly during the vote, we, we, we have reporting at Axios. Uh, my colleague, Elena Treen, is reporting that the five Republicans are, are hard nose and, and they're aligning together the, the, the plot, uh, essentially, against McCarthy becoming speaker. Uh, so th- that's the number they need to uh, to block him from becoming speaker. Now, I, I'm kind of – there are two realities that, that are at play. You, you have these five Republicans that say they won't vote for McCarthy, but then who else can get to 218 votes? It's not going to be easy. And if anything, a lot of the alternatives that could win that number would be more moderate than, than Kevin McCarthy. So I don't know how – you know, this could be a, a real dramatic uh, beginning to the new year in terms of Republicans figuring out uh, a speaker. I mean Republicans have, have had a nihilistic streak in the past. I remember with the government shutdowns of 2013 where you know things didn't work out well because certain folks were, were kind of pursuing their own agendas outside of what was good for the party. We may be in a situation like that yeah. to start on 2023. No, there, there are some members who kind of have been subscribed to that let it burn mentality. It's just like do you want the very first vote? of the brand-new, narrow Republican 
majority to be a let it burn vote on your own leadership. I mean, it's just it could get dicey. I'm still a little skeptical that it gets to that point, but we'll know and we'll know soon enough. I know McCarthy's work in the room, so to speak, very, very hard. Uh, And that's some of the intrigue, sort of the internal palace intrigue in Washington, D.C., uh, and Josh Kay, we will be talking to you about that and much more in the days and weeks ahead. Josh Krausauer at Axios, Fox News contributor. Josh, appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. Stepping aside, we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. As we return to the Guy Benson Show, just a difficult milestone today, it is the 10-year anniversary of the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. If you are of a certain age or older, I'm sure you remember that day, learning that horrible news with the lone gunman walking into an elementary school and murdering 26 people, six educators, and 20 grade school, grade school kids, young, innocent, precious children. It was horrifying. And then we were horrified again just a few months ago in Uvalde, Texas. I can't believe it has been a decade since Sandy Hook. I'm sure those wounds have still not healed for a lot of those families. I saw President Biden talking about gun control and bans on certain weapons and I don't want to get into all of that today. Some of the bans and the laws that he said are needed were in effect in Connecticut at the time. But we can disagree or agree on potential partial solutions, but we can unify in grief and anger over what happened. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can give us a follow if you are so inclined. Fox News Alert as we bring you an update on the markets. The Dow closing down 142 points at the end of the trading day. Closing bell just six minutes ago. And dipping beneath 34,000 again. So ending the day at 33,966. And that market update sponsored by Americans for Prosperity, committed to empowering every American to realize their American dream. By being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity, we love AFP, AmericansforProsperity.org. With me now is Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com, my colleague there, and a Fox News contributor, my colleague here. And Katie, happy holidays to you. It's great to have you. Yes, great to be here. Thanks, Guy. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about part of this announcement yesterday from Ron DeSantis down in Florida, and I see various people reacting negatively, which always happens whenever DeSantis does anything, (laughs) but in this particular case, he wants to investigate some of the efficacy claims about the COVID vaccines, the mRNA vaccines. Uh, We were sort of told that they would do things that they didn't. That's different Mm -hmm. than being anti-vax. It's comparing the way they were sold, and the claims made of what they would do versus what they actually did do in practice. And then he's also talking about setting up in the state of Florida basically 
a counterweight to the CDC. And I've seen a lot of pearl clutching about people and news articles quoting experts who say that this is very dangerous because it's diminishing trust in the CDC. And when we need the CDC again, fewer people will trust the CDC. And it's like, yo, if there is a Mm -hmm. credibility problem at CDC, as far as I'm concerned, Katie, that is not a Ron DeSantis caused problem. That is a CDC caused problem. Yeah. Yeah. Just to start on that, that point. Exactly. You know, the CDC has done all the damage that we're seeing and, and made this distrust completely themselves. There are a million examples to point to, whether it's their collusion with the teachers unions to keep schools closed, whether it's them telling us things that they claimed were true when they knew that they were not. And the bottom line is that, yes, we do need trustworthy health institutions that when there are you know, instances of things like a pandemic or other diseases that may come up that people have questions about, there has to be a place for people to go to have trusting information. The CDC has proven itself not to be that place. It's proven to be a political uh, outlet on many occasions. And so I think it's actually a really good thing for states like Florida to set up their own health division or help, you know, not anti-CDC, but their own government entity where they can explain what they have and the best information available at the time. Let's not forget that it's the Harvard-educated medical school uh, Surgeon General in Florida who has been right about a lot of what the CDC has been saying and them being wrong for months now. And so when it comes to the credibility of who's been correct on these issues, Florida's yep. Surgeon General is the one who's been right all along. Not I mean, CDC. if you've got if you've got, let's say, a panel of experts who got a lot of important things right and were suppressed or ignored during the pandemic, like our colleague, Dr. Marty McCary, who was just on the show mm-hmm. recently here, if he's on one hand and you've got Rochelle Walensky on the other hand and you look at the track record, I mean, look, if the CDC had handled itself relatively well during the pandemic and had been sort of straight shooters, non-political, transparent and correct, we wouldn't have this. People say, oh, it's political. He's doing this for political reasons. Even if you believe that's true, it wouldn't be politically advantageous for him to do if people broadly were satisfied with what the CDC had done in their and their performance during a very important time period. But they were screwing things up from the very beginning. Remember the testing yeah. screw-ups that they had? It was just a comedy of errors that was no laughing matter because they were really bad on schools and kids, unclear guidance, reversals. It's just been a mess. And to say that, yeah. oh, well, you know, it, the critics are the problem, as opposed to the problem being <laughs> the problem, I think really just misses the point. Well, and it's just totally laughable that they would say that Ron DeSantis is doing this uh, in setting up not only this new you know, health panel in Florida, but also wanting to look into the claims of big pharma on the efficacy of the vaccine as a political issue. It's like, what, what happened to accountability? I mean, this idea that, you know, we were told by Pfizer and Moderna repeatedly, and the CDC then repeated it because they're in bed with them, that this vaccine was effective at preventing transmission. And anybody who had questions about, you know, so maybe I want to wait a little longer until, you know, get some more information, get some more data, they were hounded out of scientific society, like Dr. Marty McCary has been in, in some ways. Uh, people were 
cast out of their friend groups. They were cast out of restaurants. They were cast out of society. People who ran into burning buildings in New York City were, were not allowed to go to dinner if they didn't take a vaccine that now we know was lied about from the beginning. And we learn after they've implemented all these mandates, after the president of the United States tries to use OSHA to force this onto every worker practically in the country, that from a Pfizer executive, that they didn't even test about transit transmission. They didn't even do studies about whether this vaccine prevented transmission, which means it's not really a vaccine, by the way. And so yeah, when you're and, and the thing developing is, and, policy and, and, you know, destroying people's lives based on something that these pharmacy companies knew they didn't do and they sat back and allowed it to happen, that's called fraud. They sold the country a vaccine based on a lie. Like they, they didn't trans, you know, study transmissibility, and yet they were pushing it under this talking point of it stops transmissibility. That's fraud. Yeah, I think part of the issue is, you know, th- I was really blown away by how successful Operation Warp Speed was getting these vaccines to the market. You looked at the data, especially in the early days, particularly among vulnerable populations and older people. You get vaccinated, you are much, much, much less likely to die from COVID. That's all great. Those are all very compelling reasons to say, hey, take this vaccine for these reasons. That's a different question than mandating it for everyone and then trying to mandate it younger and younger, where it's less and less necessary for young kids. And it's also different than making claims about what the vaccine shot will do for you that are dubious or unproven versus the actual stuff that has a lot more clinical data. I mean, that's my thing on accountability. There were plenty of assets There were plenty of good reasons to encourage people to get the vaccine that didn't require fudging or telling white lies or sort of guessing and connecting dots that hadn't been borne out in the data. And I think asking some of those questions is fair. And I think setting up panels of experts who were basically shunned for a while in favor of the consensus experts who were just wrong and inept over and over again. Uh, you know, if you don't understand the appeal of that or even the need for that, then I think you kind of misread the moment for the last couple of years. Now, somewhat relatedly, Katie, yeah. I want to ask you about this. I saw Dr. Anthony Fauci was interviewed and he said he's unbothered by Elon Musk tweeting you know, negatively about him, saying he should be prosecuted or whatever. He did say that the criticisms are putting himself, Fauci, uh, you know, in more physical danger to his personal safety. I saw the same thing, this uh, this former at- apparatchik at Twitter, the guy, this leftist who is making all these unilateral decisions, whatever his name is, Yoel Roth. Uh, they're saying he's now in more physical danger because uh, he, he's become a, a lightning rod for criticism with the Twitter files coming out. Uh, just to be clear, there should be no threats. Don't threaten people. Don't go to their houses. Don't, you know, don't do any of that stuff. Be a good person. It also drives me up the wall. When there is intense criticism directed at someone that is like a protected tribe member on the left, where immediately over and over again, they and a lot of journalists go straight to this thing like, oh, you're putting this person in danger through your criticism and your attacks against them. They never, ever, ever apply that standard to their constant vilification of (laughs) everyone that they disagree with. Yeah, no. Uh, you know, you can have a, an attempt assassination of a Supreme Court justice, and they still won't condemn yep. it. We're talking um, about and, that in just a minute. Know, actually, of course, we don't want any anyone getting hurt. You know, we don't want physical violence. But these people are constantly trying to say that 
criticism of very big screw-ups that affect millions of people's lives, especially in the case of Dr. Fauci, who has taken no responsibility for anything that he's done, despite all of the data that we have now about the decisions that he made. Um, that's not hate speech. That's not putting someone in danger. That's simply holding the highest paid bureaucrat we have in this country accountable for his own behavior and his own actions. And they try to say that it's putting someone in danger for the sake of blunting debate so they can continue to fail up, especially in a place like Washington, D.C. Um, oh, yeah. We and, allowed and to criticize like, and have questions. And I feel like if anyone got a glimpse of your social media DMs or your yeah. Twitter replies <laughs> or your email uh, correspondence that you get, if you're out there in the public eye, you get a lot of weird and sometimes disturbing incoming we don't always whine about it publicly constantly, and it's not used as like armor against criticism, like, oh, you're putting me in danger for right. pure criticism. That's allowed in this country. We don't criticize exactly. Katie Powers because we love her. Foxnews.com, <laughs> Fox News contributor, townhall.com editor. Katie, appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. We'll be Bye. right back. Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I've got to tell you, some of these congressional Republicans have really been eating their Wheaties this week in the last couple days ahead of congressional hearings where they were loaded for bear and ready for some of these witnesses that the Democrats were calling on various subjects. We played you Jim Jordan and his destruction at the Judiciary Committee of one of the Democrats' witnesses, this guy trying to make it seem like Justice Alito leaked a previous Supreme Court case a number of years ago, and Jordan just cornered this guy in an absolute provable lie in something that he wrote in his book about what a Supreme Court justice supposedly said. He wrote it in his book. It was proven to be false. They even had the audio, and that was a pretty impressive destruction. Then we have this. I saw this yesterday. Congresswoman Nancy Mace Republican of South Carolina. She's been on the show multiple times. There was a hearing about Internet censorship and big tech and threats to democracy and rhetoric and all those issues. And the Democrats, of course, were running this thing because, at least for now, the next couple of weeks, they run the House. So Nancy Mace, it was her turn to ask a question of the witnesses arrayed before her. And it seemed like it was a broad question for everyone, but she had one of them in particular in mind. Here's the setup in Cut 21. Is rhetoric on social media a problem and a threat to our democracy, Mr. Ward? Yes, absolutely. Mr. Siegel? Yes. Ms. Carabayo? Yes. Ms. Nomani? Yes. Ms. Tyler? Yes. Yes. Only a few weeks after the attempted attack on a Supreme Court justice on June 25th, one of the witnesses, Alejandra Caraballo, tweeted out the following in response to a decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade. And I'll quote directly from the tweet. The six justices who overturned Roe should never know peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they're in public. They are pariahs. Since women don't have their rights, these justices should never have a peaceful moment in public again. Okay, so that's Congresswoman Mace at this hearing on extremist rhetoric. She gets all the witnesses to say that, yes, rhetoric on social media is a problem and a threat to our democracy, including Ms. 
Caraballo, who then had put out that tweet that Mace had on a giant easel card, right? They printed the whole thing out. They had an image of it. This is the witness in her own words after the Dobbs decision. This is a trans activist who is obviously a hardcore leftist in this context as well, but who is also there on behalf of more censorship and hand-wringing about online rhetoric. So she responds, yes, social media rhetoric is a problem. It is a threat to our democracy. And then Mace reads this tweet from her saying that the Supreme Court justices in the majority in the Dobbs decision should never have a moment of peace again in their lives, that they are pariahs who deserve to be accosted at every turn. So that's interesting, isn't it? So Nancy Mace then poses a question. Here's the resulting exchange in Cut 22. So my last question today of Ms. Caraballo, do you stand by these comments, this kind of rhetoric on social media, and do you believe it's a threat to democracy? Thank you, Representative, for the opportunity to clarify and provide context to my tweets. Um, I have a question. Is it yes or no? Do you believe your rhetoric is a threat to democracy when you're calling to accost a branch of government, the Supreme Court? I don't believe that's a correct uh, characterization of my statements. Did you not tweet that? That you thought that the Supreme Court justices should be accosted? What I'm saying is that 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 is not an accurate characterization of my statements. On June 8th of this year, a man was arrested near Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home in Maryland. He told law enforcement officers he wanted to kill a Supreme Court justice. He was found um, uh, with uh, a knife, with a pistol, two magazines, ammunition, pepper spray, zip ties, a hammer, crowbar, and duct tape. I mean, just nailed to the wall. And this activist witness, Ms. Caraballo, can say this is not an accurate or correct characterization of her statements. Uh, The tweet said what it said. It was read verbatim by the congresswoman. And I just think there has to be a lack of self-awareness. When you agree to show up at a congressional committee, you're invited by your allies, hey, let's talk about extremist rhetoric and overheated rhetoric and how it's dangerous to our democracy and it's, it's a threat to the republic and all of that and you say yes okay yeah i'm there can't wait to be there thanks for inviting me and you just have no thought no awareness that your own radical extreme rhetoric on social media very recently targeting members of the government officials in the u.s government might come up and just saying oh well it's you you need to provide context it's not a correct characterization It's not accurate. It's right there in black and white. It's very clear what this person said and what this person meant. And, of course, as Mace correctly points out, there was a Supreme Court justice who was targeted for assassination. And that story went away in the blink of an eye. It barely made the Washington Post the next day. It was not mentioned on any of the Sunday shows a few days later except for Fox News Sunday. A Paul Pelosi attack... Huge news for multiple weeks, right? If there is some sort of threat or allegation or concern about right-wing rhetoric or right-wing incitement, if there's something awful that happens, if you can blame conservatives and their words for it, boy, the media and the Democrats are all in. When the shoe's on the other foot, it's just memory hold. And I guess maybe this woman, this activist, memory hold from herself her own unhinged comments on this front.
Do I blame Ms. Caraballo specifically, directly for the assassination attempt against Justice Kavanaugh? No. I blame the person who flew across the country to try to kill him. But under their rules, based on their standards, Caraballo is very much part of the crisis and a threat to democracy. And then when she's called out pretty cleanly by Congresswoman Mace, all of a sudden, oh, no, that's not accurate. We need context. I think the point was made and made quite well. Bravo, Nancy Mace. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through today's program, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast and more every single day. Joining us now is Matt Finn, Fox News national correspondent who is in Moscow, Idaho, covering a very big story that's gotten a lot of attention, though we have not mentioned it on this program until now. Matt Finn, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Guy. So... I'll just explain, even though this is getting a lot of play on the news channel and garnering quite a lot of attention around the country because of this ongoing mystery, we haven't covered it just because it's a frightening story, it's a pretty sensational story, and it's still this unsolved multiple homicide. I've been watching it from the periphery, and I have grown increasingly frustrated by what seems to be a lot of mismanagement of the investigation. I know critics are coming out of the woodwork. There are still more questions than answers, and I've been watching some of your work out there, and I said, you know what, this has now sufficiently hooked me. Let's bring Matt Finn in to talk about this. Give us, for folks who haven't been paying attention, because a lot of people have, but some people might be new to the story, give us just the broad strokes, what happened and when, and then we can catch up on where we are now. Sure. Well, police say just a little bit over a month ago, on November 13th, four University of Idaho students were slaughtered in their sleep, all stabbed to death in a shared home they have, basically right off of Greek Row uh, at the University of Idaho. You know, initially there was a lot of um, a lot of media here at the University of Idaho, a ton of attention on this story, and right off the bat, the mayor came out saying this was a um, a crime of passion. You know, police were saying this was a very targeted attack. So I think a lot of people, a lot of viewers, even myself watching this from home, were thinking, okay, you know, any day now or any hour we're going to hear of a suspect or a suspect's. Uh, you know, police may release some information or a video or a screenshot of someone they're on the lookout for. But now here we are a month later and police have not announced any suspects. They really haven't even announced any major leads. Uh, and so now people are becoming very frustrated here on campus. Uh, the family of one of the murdered students, the father, has spoken out saying, you know, I paid for my daughter's funeral. Uh, police are not really giving us any type of major updates. And, you know, by and large, a lot of people think this case has gone cold, if you will, just because police have not really released any progress. But, you know, every time you talk to police, anytime you talk to an investigator, they insist that this case is not cold, that they're getting tips every single day. But I think a lot of people are really uh, growing skeptical, Guy. It was three young women and a young man who were killed in the wee hours of the morning, as you say, sort of right off the sort of heart of campus in Greek Row, horrifying story it sounds like the murders were brutal and savage there were a few other people in the house where the attacks took place correct at the time and they survived they were not killed right yes there were two young women who survived and were not killed 
has there been, and forgive my ignorance on this, has there been any question about how they could, because apparently they didn't hear it, right? How can you not hear four people being brutally murdered in your house in the middle of the night? Has there been any resolution to that question? That was one of the glaring questions. It's one of the things I asked uh, as a viewer and a journalist was, who was covering this from the studio. Uh, and police have, you know, insisted that those two survivors have been cleared. They have not released any details on what they did or did not hear. But they did say that someone called from inside the house at about 12 o'clock noon on the following day. So another big question was what took so long for these two survivors to call uh, you know, when apparently there were four slaughtered bodies inside of their home. Um, now, you and I know college students like to stay out very late on Saturday yeah. nights. Uh, we've right. all done it. Uh, police say that these the, the four um, students that were killed didn't really ri- arrive back home until 2 a.m. So maybe, you know, they didn't pass out, go to sleep till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. They did the classic sleep till 11 or 12 o'clock on Sunday. So maybe those two survivors really didn't wake up until pretty late on, on Sunday morning. That is just my theory. But I have yeah, to tell no, you, that makes on the ground. Sense. Yeah. And, and here on the ground, you know, the home, I, I was surprised because, I, I, again, I watched it uh, as a viewer. I was watching the video of our fellow colleagues covering the story. Then I arrived here. And it's a really densely populated area. You know, it's, it's Greek Row is right there. There's a, a fraternity house right across the street. There's apartment buildings all over. And so I was just surprised that four murders uh, happened here without any eyewitnesses, without anyone apparently hearing anything, because it's a pretty closely populated area. And you and I know people have ring cameras nowadays. It seems like there's surveillance everywhere. I was waiting any day to wake up and hear the police said, hey, you know, here's a silhouette or here's some people on video um, that we want you to be on the lookout for. The only thing they said is they're looking they're asking the public to look for a 2011 through 2013 white Hyundai Elantra. And we don't even know what role that car plays in this. They're just asking to speak to the occupants of that car. So um, it, it's an absolute murder mystery. It, you know, it's devastating to this community because, you know, the students are wrapping up finals right now, preparing for the holidays. And four of their, uh, you know, their fellow students were murdered. How do you even focus on school and studying for exams when you've potentially lost friends or people that you know and or you're worried that there's a killer on the loose potentially still in the community that's already targeted four students at the university. Just an awful situation out there in Moscow, Idaho. You mentioned some of the critiques of the authorities, and it's coming mm-hmm. in from you know, media critics, people who are watching the story, folks in the community, family members, as you said, of the deceased. Who is running this investigation? Are there any calls perhaps to have different people come in with a fresh set of eyes, because a month is a long time to have effectively nothing to show for an investigation. Sure. The Moscow police are giving the daily updates. They really are essentially, you know, running it. Uh, They are the the public's uh, source of information. We know that the FBI arrived here very shortly after, and they had some elite teams that arrived here. Uh, And, you know, there's there's dozens of um, officers from different agencies. You know, we're reminded of that daily, you know, uh, how large, how big of a skill investigation this is. And look, I mean, I've covered murder cases before. I've covered missing persons, Molly Tibbetts uh, in Iowa, um, other, you know, other young women across the country. And sometimes, you and I know, you do hit this lull where there's no new information for days, weeks, or quite some time. You know, and then all of a sudden, bam, police release either, you know, their suspects or their major arrests. And then they say, by the way, you know, by the way, when you and the public and the viewers were, you know, upset or frustrated with us, we were methodically behind the scenes chipping away at this case. And a lot of times they'll even show you their step-by-step investigation. One thing led to the next. So that could be happening right now. 
You know, we, we just don't know. The latest thing I will say, as I reported on Fox News this morning, is there is um, an officer's body camera video. Uh, he was talking there, questioning some students about underage drinking on that night. And there's there's silhouettes of some people walking behind uh, in his video. If you go to foxnews.com, you might be able to see it. Um, we, we don't know what those silhouettes were. I mean, they could have been just kids walking around on a Saturday night. But if anything, that's the latest possible piece of evidence in this case. Yeah, I think it's a good cautionary word. Yeah. It might be the case that the authorities here are blowing it and they are really botching this investigation and the criticisms are warranted. That's possible. It's also possible that we don't really know and all the second guessing is missing stuff that is out of the public eye for good reason. Only time will tell. There was this element of the car that you mentioned, this white Mm -hmm. Hyundai vehicle. My understanding, Matt, was that there was some video from like a gas station that may mm-hmm. have shown a car speeding in that area around that time. And perhaps it was a gas station employee who took it upon him or herself to go yes. and pour through all the footage and then come to the police with that. I mean, good for that person for being conscientious and proactive. That might, though, fuel some of the questions about what are the police doing if it's weeks later and it takes a private citizen, basically, to do some of this effectively detective work on their own volition, their own initiative. Yeah, absolutely. So it's that 2011 through 2013 white Hyundai Elantra. I, you know, specify that because that's the only tidbit that, um, you know, police are asking the public to be on the lookout for. And so, yes, there's a nearby gas station. There was an employee who said that she took the time to scroll through all the video that night. She spotted this white car, the white kind of a midsize sedan, uh, what she considered a high range of speed driving by the gas station. Uh, she tells Fox Digital that police came and then took that surveillance. You know, looking at the video, and this is just us being skeptical, not sure if it's a white Hyundai Elantra. It could be a different car. But you're right. I mean, that only feeds the fuel of frustration. People saying, how come a month later? You know, did, did police not go to this nearby gas station uh, sooner? But you never know. And by the way, you know, it's not like officers said, you know, we think that the, the suspect or the killer or killers were in this car. They just said, we just want to talk to who's ever inside of it. So for all we know, it may not even be that important. Maybe it's not that pressing. You know, they're just looking for someone who left town after winter break and never came back. You know, and that's yeah. the other thing, too, here. You and I know that college towns are kind of transient. There's, there's lots of people coming and going from, from uh, different towns, different states. And well, by uh, definition, right, now, right, you're there for a couple of years, then you leave. Yeah. And, you know, four yeah. years, five years later, it's almost a whole different group of students. I mean, that is another part of the trouble here. And also, Matt, yeah. last question. I've yeah. seen and, and most of my attention to this story has come through our Fox News coverage on the air when I've had the TV on in the background on mute. And I've just seen images and I've seen chirons. And it seems like over the course of these weeks, the Chirons have been saying different things about what the police are telling the public about whether or not, and you alluded to this earlier, whether or not these were random killings, specifically targeted killings, targeting one or more of these four people, and the other ones were just kind of like you know collateral damage, which is a horrible way to think about it. It just seems like we don't even really have a handle on why these people were murdered, which is just another piece of this mystery that is awful to think about and highly disturbing, even from all the way across the country. It must be totally alarming if you live there. 
Yes, and, you know, the coroner has come out and said that these four young students were killed with a large bladed knife, and this is graphic, but, you know, I think in the initial hours of the day after these killings, there was actually blood pouring from inside of the home to the outside of the home. It apparently had maybe gone through the baseboards. And so, you know, these, these poor young students were, the bodies were laying there for quite some time. And, yeah, you know, the, the coroner said these were brutal, brutal killings, you know, a large bladed knife. Uh, one of the fathers of the students has come out and said, you know, maybe one of the girls was targeted based on her uh, her individual wounds, but we absolutely don't have that confirmed because police have not released anything. From the start, they said it was targeted. Then there was kind of this weird thing a week or two ago where one of the prosecutors said, well, we're not sure if it was targeted. You know, it could have been random. But then police came back and doubled down and said, no, we're sticking with our narrative that this was targeted. But it's, it's absolutely eerie. You know, it's something out of a horror movie. Four college students brutally slaughtered, and there's a killer or killers at large. Matt Finn, Fox News national correspondent with us in Moscow, Idaho. Following this case, I understand why it's gotten so much scrutiny. And I think as it continues to play out, of course, people might start to look elsewhere and their minds wander and it gets less focused attention. But also the fact that the mystery remains so completely unsolved, sort of comprehensively in every way, that I think also feeds the interest in the story I know you're covering it, we're covering it at Fox News, and for the first time here on our show, we're talking about it as well. And I just hope for the sake of the people who live in that community, and especially the loved ones of the victims, I hope this gets resolved and justice is brought to whoever's responsible, because it's just gut-wrenching. And in addition to the sadness and the grief, there's also the ongoing fear. And that fear will remain as long as the perpetrator or perpetrators remain on the loose and unidentified, which is the current state of play. Matt Finn, we appreciate your time and all of your details, and we'll be watching. Thank you very much, Guy. The Guy Benson Show is back after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, glad to have you here. Just a quick update on the story that we talked about last week with Kat Timpf. It's the saga of this Biden administration official with the Department of Energy, Samuel Brinton, who has now been implicated in multiple instances of luggage theft at different airports. I think one was in Minnesota, the other one in Las Vegas, Nevada where he or they, this is a non-binary, non-conforming individual, so I don't want to gratuitously misgender someone. It's just a little bit tricky to keep track of this, and it can be awkward to try to get everything right. But this person is on security film, on security footage, captured on camera on multiple occasions, taking someone else's luggage off of the belt, the luggage belt, baggage claim, and walking away with that luggage. Very nice high-end luggage with apparently some very valuable stuff inside. And we know that this person was aware that their actions were criminal because, at least in one of the cases, they checked the luggage tag with the proper owner's name on it and removed it and threw it in the garbage while still on camera. And it now looks like this was a repeat thing. Who knows if it only happened twice, right? We know of two so far. And 
It could be like some sort of a spree, like this was a kleptomaniac situation. Unclear. But with those charges coming into play, I mean, these are felonies. After the first incident, Brinton was put on leave, administrative leave. And then as of earlier this week, a Department of Energy spokesperson told Fox News that Brinton, quote, is no longer a DOE employee and also added that this is not a Biden official, meaning that it wasn't a Biden appointee. This was more of a career person. But this person was highlighted and celebrated within the Biden administration as this sort of trailblazing, glass ceiling shattering type of figure within the LGBT world. And the only reason we ever heard about this person prior to the alleged crimes was because of the identity issues at play. That's how they or he or whatever became famous. And it wasn't an accident. It was a big PR thing. And now it looks like they might have picked the wrong they to go with as a champion of this because, you know, this is not a great situation. And then the further update beyond Brinton apparently getting fired, I guess multiple criminal charges at some point, they, they can't keep you on anymore. Brinton turning himself in today to authorities after the attorney in the case, the defense attorney, filed a motion to recall the felony arrest warrant. So I guess this person would turn himself in or turn themselves in. It's awkward phrasing. And it sounds like the attorney is looking for, quote, reasonable bail to be set in the case. It's sort of like a fluid situation. We will see what the judge in the case decides. I saw $15,000 is something that they were maybe shooting for. No word on whether Brinton asked if they can give the equivalent of $15,000 in luggage as a collateral to meet that bail. I guess that's something that the judge would have to rule on separately. But, you know, I was thinking about this. What a huge week it would have been for Sam Brinton. With the Respect for Marriage Act, big LGBT celebration at the White House yesterday, this huge breakthrough about, was it like nuclear fission or something? And I'm so far from a scientist or an expert. I just read that there was some big nuclear breakthrough that was very significant this week, and there was a big announcement about it. These would be right in their wheelhouse. And obviously they've got other things on their plate right now because of what appears to be like caught red-handed criminal behavior. So just a wild and bizarre story with a few updates just in the last few days. We wanted to give you those updates, and we wanted to bring those to you here on The Guy Benson Show. We will take a break. When we come back, final hour of today's show, former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf will be here in studio on the border crisis, his unique perspective coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge every day on demand. 
GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, which we recommend as well, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. This hour is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, as usual. We always appreciate that. We love their product, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. You can taste why this drink is exploding in popularity all across the country. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find where it's sold near you, TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now in studio in D.C., Chad Wolf, former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and now AFPI's chairman of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration. And, Mr. Secretary, it's good to have you back on the program. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Guy. Good to be back. Well, we had Bill Malugin, our Fox colleague, joining us yesterday, in fact, during this exact segment a day ago, reporting from the border in Texas about some of the latest developments. And it feels sometimes like some of us paying attention to this are just shouting into the ether, where a lot of the folks in the media who might be covering a very big story under different circumstances have little to no appetite in this controversy, in this scandal, quite frankly. Malugin's out there doing the job every day. We try to amplify that when possible. And there's also this struggle that I have in terms of trying to cover it responsibly and not sounding hyperbolic and going overboard with some of the rhetoric. And yet, I think it is fair to say that this absolutely awful catastrophe of a crisis has gotten worse and is still getting worse and could reach its worst moments yet in a matter of days because of a policy change that's coming. I mean, this is your area of expertise. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I do. I it, I agree with you. I, I think it feels like Groundhog Day. Every day we talk about the crisis that's unfolding on the border, uh, the challenges that the men and women of the Border Patrol are facing, the hundreds of thousands of folks coming across the border, the ones that we apprehend, the ones that we don't apprehend, the national security threats, how this is impacting Americans every day with the fentanyl crisis, on and on and on. And every day and every week and every month, it gets worse and worse and worse because there's no strategy and plan to address this crisis. And so for the last 23 months, really, it's been, um, you know, we've, we, you would think you hit rock bottom. And every month, uh, somehow, this administration finds the way to hit a new bottom. Um, and that's what we're seeing. And then that's what's staring us in the face when Title 42 goes away uh, just next week, next Wednesday, I believe. Um, and so what's the plan in place to deal with that authority, which allows them to remove individuals pretty quickly? Uh, if they no longer have that authority, what are they going to do and how are they going to address this crisis? And I, I think that's the most concerning thing. And I, I agree with you that it doesn't seem to be getting the coverage that it really should. I mean, more Americans should be concerned about this because it impacts them all. But, you know, when you have uh, a, a lot of different media outlets just simply ignoring it, ignoring it because it doesn't fit a certain narrative that they want to push. I think that does a disservice to the American people because you're not being honest with them. Yeah, uh, you need to be honest with the American people so that we can find solutions. And these are not easy solutions. Otherwise, we would have already solved this. This is going to take some hard decision making, uh, both by the administration and ultimately by Congress. Uh, but if the American people aren't for that, then then Congress will will take a pass and uh, we won't see any any solutions. 
Well, if we want more attention on the issue, perhaps it's time for another Republican governor to put a handful of migrants on a plane to, like, Nantucket or something. Then all of a sudden we'll get days of hysterical coverage, and then it'll peter out. But at least it will remind folks that this is still happening. And when I say it's getting worse, we ran through the numbers with Bill yesterday. In the first two months of the new fiscal year, so starting October 1st, we have seen a significant increase in border encounters, tens of thousands, I mean, 50, 60 plus thousand known gotaways each of those months. December is not slowing down. And then there's this Title 42 component of it. We use that term a lot. I think people who listen to the show regularly or follow this issue, they understand what Title 42 is, why it has been an enforcement tool that's important, and what the consequences could be if and when it goes away in just a matter of days. For people who might just be tuning into this program or this issue, can you just briefly explain, Mr. Secretary, what is Title 42? How was it being used effectively to at least mitigate somewhat the border crisis? And what happens if it goes away, as the administration says it will, later this month? Well, absolutely. Title 42 is a, a public health order that is issued uh, by the CDC, uh, but it's operationalized by DHS. So a lot of people just kind of equate Title 42 with with DHS. And uh, we put it in place, we being the Trump administration, put it in place back in early the early part of 2020 when COVID was sort of just hitting. And we needed a way to really support and keep safe our men and women of, of Border Patrol. So we you, you put that authority in place so that you don't have to put these migrants into Border Patrol facilities where a virus like COVID could spread pretty quickly. So it allows Border Patrol to simply turn these individuals around and, and essentially push them back into Mexico. So you don't have to really process them. You certainly don't have to hold them in facilities. You simply return them back to Mexico. Um, and that authority now has been used since, the early, since when we put it in place in, in 2020 up until today. Um, the idea that this authority was going to hang around forever is not a reality, right? Even in the latter part of 2020, in the Trump administration, we started to think about what, whenever Title 42 goes away, what are we going to put in place? What are the procedures? And we were going to build on what we were doing prior to COVID-19 hitting. So we were going to do more on MPP or the Remain in Mexico program, our asylum cooperative agreements, and three of other, four of other programs that we put in place that we had put on pause during COVID. And so we had a plan in place. And that's what I think the American people deserve to see from this administration. I don't think they have a plan, though, Guy. Right? If you have Secretary Mayorkas in El Paso just yesterday, the, as you indicated, the epicenter of the crisis, it's a, it's a great opportunity. It's a platform for him to say, Title 42 may go away next week, but don't worry. Here is the plan that is in place to address this crisis and to reduce this crisis and the numbers coming across. But, of course, that didn't happen. That didn't happen because they don't have a plan. And I keep saying, and I think it's true, is they don't want to solve the crisis. They want to manage the crisis, meaning they want to flood more personnel and resources to the border so they can facilitate and process more of these migrants into the country quicker, which, again, just is a further incentive to push more and more individuals across the border. It's sort of like if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. And so if you process more and more and you get really good at it, well, guess what? Guess who catches on? The cartels and the traffickers and the smugglers. 
and they're just going to keep pushing more and more people across. So it's a it's a fundamental philosophy I think this administration is taking very different, not only than the Trump administration, but I would say any other administration where they simply don't want to solve this crisis. They don't even want to try to solve it. They just want to manage it. And then they think if they manage it and there's not pictures of long lines or a lot of migrants waiting under bridges or anywhere else, then they somehow, quote, they have solved the problem. And it's just not the case. Well, it's almost like they support the crisis. And that's an incredibly you know, cynical thing to say. But I don't really know how else to frame it at a certain point where they know that there are solutions that may not be perfect, but are a lot better than what we're seeing down there, and they steadfastly refuse to avail themselves of any of those solutions because they might be too effective. They might have you know, Trump's name on them, basically, so they can't do that. And then you have just this completely out-of-control scenario where you're looking at thousands of known gotaways every day, thousands more encounters every day, a potential doubling of that number after Title 42. And it just seems like they might say, all right, let's get these folks in. The incentives are what they are. Let's process them and release them into the country and ship them to various cities where they want to go. And maybe some of them will show up for their hearings down the line. Some of them won't. But that's okay because at some point we'll have the votes for a big amnesty bill and we'll get these people here permanently. Hopefully they'll become voters and hopefully they'll vote for us. I know that that is about as ugly a plan as you can think of in terms of impugning someone's motives and saying this is what they're really up to. But if there's a better explanation for the motives at play, I haven't seen it from my perspective. Well, I think you're right. I think there's some there's certainly some truth in there. And what we continue to hear from this administration, specifically from the the White House, right, from the podium, the White House spokesperson, talking about how Congress, particularly Republicans in Congress, are not working with the White House and the administration to to solve this problem. Um, it, it, it's interesting to remind them uh, that they have all the tools that they need to address this this crisis and to solve it. They have it within the executive branch. The president has authorities and DHS has authorities. And how do we know this? Because you we did, did it. it at the we did it at the end of the Trump administration. We had you know Congress didn't pass any laws in, in 2019 and 20 that helped us. Instead, we actually just enforce the law. And so this idea that they're running to every microphone and saying, look, if only congressional Republicans would, would come to our side no, and, no, vote, it's a total and vote red for error. amnesty, it's, it, this is a crazy philosophy or approach to a problem that they have. They don't want to look at themselves in the mirror and say we've got all the authorities. What, it, what it's going to require is leadership and will and the ability to make some hard decisions. And they don't, they don't want to do that. They're beholden. Uh, to the far left of, the, of their party, to the immigration activists, to the NGOs that are getting millions and millions and millions of dollars to facilitate and to transport these migrants all across the country. That's who they're – that's the plan that they have devised. That, that's who that plan well, is Well, and for. they're getting away with it. From their perspective, they're getting away with it. It's a huge disaster. Most people aren't covering it, and so they've got some political cover from their allies in the news media to just sort of keep this thing going the way that it's going. And, you know, you made this point. Ultimately, I think Congress does need to fix some of this stuff. And I'm very much of the enforcement first mentality, especially now. But even if that comes down the line, as you said, a combination of going back to succeeding policies like remain in Mexico being a huge one, 
reinstituting that as the blanket policy for the U.S. government when it comes to most people who are encountered at the border, that would go a very long way. And just completely changing the incentive structure and sending a clear message, not just with Kamala Harris, the borders are saying once or twice, do not come, actually making it clear that the U.S. government is going to crack down and they're not going to tolerate this and it's not going to be this sort of open free-for-all, those changes alone in policy and regulation and just tone publicly, that would combine to be a rather potent force in this. They won't do any of that. They don't want to do any of that. And it seems pretty clear that the president himself doesn't even want to think about it or see any of it. And I want to turn to that as soon as we come back with Chad Wolf, former acting secretary at DHS on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Former acting secretary at the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. We've been talking about the border crisis, and I guess the question that I have now, Mr. Secretary, is this. I know that kind of the little partisan political skirmish playing out at the moment, and there are some Democrats who are joining the fray and lending their voices to the chorus of Republicans saying that President Biden needs to go down to the border. And I was asking Bill Malugin about this yesterday as well. You know, I probably think he should go down there. He should have to see what his policies are wreaking in terms of this havoc and this chaos and, frankly, death. But I'm also concerned that it's almost missing the point, right? The fact that he wasn't down there for eight years as VP, he hasn't been down there as president, it doesn't really make a difference if the policies don't change. So just like having him go down and say, see, I'm here, here's, you know, click the cameras, I'm going to give a little statement here prepared. I'll have some people standing behind me looking grave. We're going to talk about how we're getting our arms around this, and we're going to also be compassionate at the same time. And then you leave 45 minutes later, and that's the end of it. Then he almost gets like a, like a political optics moment, a photo op, to pretend that he's caring about something that he obviously doesn't. So I'm just not even sure – if it's worth pressuring him to get down there, if it doesn't actually change any of the policies? Well, I think that's what would be the hope. Uh, you know, the hope would be if if the president does visit the border, he does it in a substantial way, and it's not simply one photo op. And I just go back to the the number of times that President Trump visited the border, not only in, in Texas, but certainly in Arizona as well. And he actually engaged with Border Patrol agents and officers, usually off camera, asking them, uh, you know, how how is the environment today? What's going on? What do you see on the border? What do you need to do your job? And if President Biden, Vice President Harris actually asked those questions, and there's no way for them to come away from that border visit and say that the strategy that they have in place is working. That's true. There's there's just no way to do it. So I would hope that if a visit did occur, then uh, they would actually put him in front of agents and officers um, who will be, you know, I, I've interacted with these folks numerous times. They are very upfront on what the situation is and, and what they need. And so that's kind of the hope, but I, I, I do yeah, agree with you. That's the I, hope, probably... but again, and I sound like such a cynic, but I feel like they wouldn't do that by design. They would insulate him from any of that. Yeah. They would clean up the area that he was going. Some of the hardcore critics, like the actual frontline 
officers wouldn't get anywhere within shouting distance of the guy, and then he leaves. If he's going to go down there and actually open his eyes, talking to people, actual curiosity, wanting an exchange of ideas, that would be great, and it could actually be constructive in some way. But I don't necessarily anticipate that happening. And maybe it's, like, so unnecessary in their minds politically that they won't even put on the dog and pony show. He just won't go at all. Uh, I guess we'll have to see. Quickly, Chad Wolf, last word to you. Well, I, I think all of that is right. I think if, if he was to visit the border, the the president, and, and they don't do that, then I think, you know, sort of the cat's out of the bag, which is he doesn't care about the border. And I think that's pretty clear at mm-hmm. this point. You've never visited the border. It's one of the major crises facing your administration and the American people more broadly. And you have no interest in actually seeing it for your like I've I've been to the border numerous times. I, I could I, I know what it what it feels like, what it looks like and what it smells like. And that has an impact on what you how you go back and you address that. So that's kind of the the hope. Uh, but if he chooses not to do that and he chooses to stay away from the border, then he's going to continue to you know, say what he said, which is, I've got more important things to do. I've got more important things to do than to solve the crisis that's killing Americans every single day. And, and with that, it's sort of like, what's going on? And I think the majority of Americans are like, this, this is absolutely absurd. Over 22 months, they can't figure this out. They can't yeah, figure it, out how to solve this. It's unacceptable. But to them, it is acceptable. And therein lies the problem. Former acting secretary of DHS and current chairman of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration at AFPI, Chad Wolf, our guest here on the show. Mr. Secretary, appreciate your time. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and your family. All right. Merry Christmas. Thank you. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson. Back here on the happy hour, it's the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, we had the pleasure of catching up with my friend and colleague at both townhall.com and Fox News, the great and lovely Katie Pavlich. Here's part of my conversation with Katie. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about part of this announcement yesterday from Ron DeSantis down in Florida. And I see various people reacting negatively, which always happens whenever DeSantis does anything. (laughs) But in this particular case... He wants to investigate some of the efficacy claims about the COVID vaccines, the mRNA vaccines. Uh, We were sort of told that they would do things that they didn't. That's different Mm -hmm. than being anti-vax. It's comparing the way they were sold and the claims made of what they would do versus what they actually did do in practice. And then he's also talking about setting up in the state of Florida basically a counterweight to the CDC. And I've seen a lot of pearl clutching about people and News articles quoting experts who say that this is very dangerous because it's diminishing trust in the CDC. And when we need the CDC again, fewer people will trust the CDC. And it's like, yo, if there is a Mm -hmm. credibility problem at CDC, as far as I'm concerned, Katie, that is not a Ron DeSantis caused problem. That is a CDC caused problem. Yeah. Yeah. To, To start on that, that point. Exactly. You know, the CDC has done all the damage that we're seeing and and made this distrust completely themselves. There are a million examples to point to, whether it's their collusion with the teachers unions to keep schools closed, whether it's them telling us things that they claimed were true when they knew that they were not. And the bottom line is that, yes, we do need trustworthy health institutions that when there are 
you know, instances of things like a pandemic or other diseases that may come up that people have questions about, there has to be a place for people to go to have trusting information. The CDC has proven itself not to be that place. It's proven to be a political uh, outlet on many occasions. And so I think it's actually a really good thing for states like Florida to set up their own health division or help, you know, not anti-CDC, but their own government entity where they can explain what they have and the best information available at the time. Let's not forget that it's the Harvard-educated medical school uh, Surgeon General in Florida who has been right about a lot of what the CDC has been saying and them being wrong for months now. And so when it comes to the credibility of who's been correct on these issues, Florida's yep. Surgeon General is the one who's been right all along. Not I mean, if you've state. got if you've got, let's say, a panel of experts who got a lot of important things right and were suppressed or ignored during the pandemic, like our colleague, Dr. Marty McCary, who was just on the show mm-hmm. recently here, if he's on one hand and you've got Rochelle Walensky on the other hand and you look at the track record, I mean, look, if the CDC had handled itself relatively well during the pandemic and had been sort of straight shooters, non-political, transparent and correct, we wouldn't have this. People say, oh, it's political. He's doing this for political reasons. Even if you believe that's true, it wouldn't be politically advantageous for him to do if people broadly were satisfied with what the CDC had done in their and their performance during a very important time period. But they were screwing things up from the very beginning. Remember the testing yeah. screw-ups that they had? It was just a comedy of errors that was no laughing matter because they were really bad on schools and kids, unclear guidance, reversals. It's just been a mess. And to say that, yeah. oh, well, you know, it, the critics are the problem, as opposed to the problem being <laughs> the problem, I think really just misses the point. Well, it's just totally laughable that they would say that Ron DeSantis is doing this uh, and setting up not only this new you know, health panel in Florida, but also wanting to look into the claims of Big Pharma on the efficacy of the vaccine as a political issue. It's like, what, what happened to accountability? I mean, this idea that, you know, we were told by Pfizer and Moderna repeatedly, and the CDC then repeated it because they were in bed with them, that this vaccine was effective at preventing transmission. And anybody who had questions about, you know, so maybe I want to wait a little longer until, you know, get some more information, get some more data. They were hounded out of scientific society, like Dr. Marty McCary has been in, in some ways. Uh, people were cast out of their friend groups. They were cast out of restaurants. They were cast out of society. People who ran into burning buildings in New York City were, were not allowed to go to dinner if they didn't take a vaccine that now we know was lied about at, from the beginning. And we learn after they've implemented all these mandates, after the president of the United States tries to use OSHA to force this onto every worker practically in the country, that from a Pfizer executive, that they didn't even test about transmission. They didn't even do studies about whether this vaccine prevented transmission, which means it's not really a vaccine, by the way. And so when you're developing policy and, and, you know, destroying people's lives, based on something that these pharmacy companies knew they didn't do and they sat back and allowed it to happen, that's called fraud. They sold the country a vaccine based on a lie. Like they, they didn't trans, you know, study transmissibility and yet they were pushing it under this talking point of it stops transmissibility. That's fraud. Yeah, I think part of the issue is, you know, I was 
really blown away by how successful Operation Warp Speed was, getting these vaccines to the market. You looked at the data, especially in the early days, particularly among vulnerable populations and older people. You get vaccinated, you are much, much, much less likely to die from COVID. That's all great. Those are all very compelling reasons to say, hey, take this vaccine for these reasons. That's a different question than mandating it for everyone and then trying to mandate it younger and younger where it's less and less necessary for young kids. And it's also different than making claims about what the vaccine shot will do for you that are dubious or unproven versus the actual stuff that has a lot more clinical data. I mean, that's my thing on accountability. There were plenty of assets. There were plenty of good reasons to encourage people to get the vaccine that didn't require fudging or telling white lies or sort of guessing and connecting dots that hadn't been borne out in the data. My full interview with Katie Pavlich, townhall.com, Fox News contributor, just a fabulous person. It's all available online. GuyBensonShow.com also is part of the podcast. The entire show on demand, start to finish, absolutely free every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. It's an important evening at Fox News in this holiday season. Producer Christine says that she has a reputation to uphold or maybe repair, maybe both. We'll explain right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Now, is this is that Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers on the broadcast edition of the Guy Benson Show? A little Christmas action from that dynamic duo. Recommended by my friend Carolyn. What an excellent pull this time of year. Glad to have you here. It is the home stretch. GuyBensonShow.com, our website for the free podcast. So Quiet Wyatt sent us this story in our group chat yesterday. It's a Fox News lifestyle story that says dry January can work, yes, but beware boozy December, this according to experts. And, of course, dry January, we actually referenced it yesterday. It's something that a lot of people do, sort of like a detox after the holidays. There's a lot of partying and drinking and festivities. So in January, a lot of folks resolve not to drink alcohol for that month and just sort of reset for the new year. Christine attempted it either last year or the year before, made it not even close to halfway through the month, uh, and then started drinking again, and then declared it a success, uh, which, of course, is, I think, defining down success. But this story seems to be saying that, okay, yeah, dry January is fine and good, but you still have to be careful about being overly bibulous, let's say, in a boozy December And I have to say, I think that ship has kind of sailed. Given the number of parties, not just the party that we threw here, and we talk about probably way too much here on the show, just company Christmas parties, friends throwing little soirees and events, cocktail hours, various organizations. I mean, it's just a time of the year where even if you don't typically plan on drinking very much, just cumulatively over the course of the month, with the build-up to the holidays, the holidays themselves, and then a very booze-centric holiday at the very end, which is New Year's Eve, I mean, it'll get you. 
so it's probably good to be aware of that, but I'm also not saying like, oh, I'm going to really try to cut back on drinking in December. It's sort of like a futile fight as far as I'm concerned. It's like the one month really of the year where it's like, all right, it is what it is. It's the holidays. You just sort of bake it into the cake, so to speak, for the most part. And, Christine, I wonder what you make of this, understanding that you won't do dry January, certainly not successfully, but boozy December, it's like almost what December was supposed to be all along. I don't care what the experts tell me. Um, Guy, I'm your producer, correct? That is correct. Okay, and I every day put a rundown together. Is that correct? It's like a list of topics that we're going to be talking about Mm -hmm. over the course of the show and the guests and the intros and links to things yes Mm -hmm. sometimes the intros are good sometimes they're not (laughs) yeah yeah, there was a little uh, little error earlier that's okay we um, worked through it could you please read to me the home stretch on the rundown yeah it says uh kicker topic dry january can Mm. work yes but beware a boozy december according to experts and you have the link to fox news you have a follow-up story that we might get to as a bullet point, and you do have, in all caps, bolded in parentheses, Cookie doesn't want to do this story. So with that being said, you surely can go to Wyatt and talk about his boozy December. I am trying to clean up my image. Are you? I, I am. <laughs> Your image needs some... Was there something that perhaps happened that caused you to think that perhaps your image needs to be cleaned up? Like, I don't know, something that maybe your daughter said to you? So, well, I mean, I guess I could just go back and listen to Home Stretch for 2022 and realize maybe it's time to clean up or my 2021 act. or 2020. Thank you. 2019. Go on. Um, but my daughter asked me yesterday if I had any hobbies. And I had to think about it. And I said, I don't really think I do. And she goes... Well, you love to clean, Mommy. Your favorite thing is to clean, and you love wine, so maybe those are your hobbies. (laughs) I mean, is she wrong? She's not wrong, but I had to explain to her, like, please don't go around saying that. Like sometimes, you know, they actually are connected. They're related because after the wine, cleaning needs to happen. Do you ever drink wine while vacuuming and cleaning at the same time? No, very – I can imagine you listening to some, like, Nickelback – looking through your front windows at your Christmas inflatables with a giant holiday pour of wine and your latest, like your seventh in a line of eight vacuum cleaners that you've purchased within the last two weeks. It seems like that's like your personal happy place. I mean, it's not a bad place to be. <laughs> that's actually. Well, no, she said something else too, right? Like some, some like parents of one of her classmates invited you over. Megan has a birthday party to attend on Saturday afternoon, and I said to her, um, the parents actually invited us for cake and for a few drinks, you know, for a drink, after, you know, they do the festivities with their family. And I said to Megan, so when we pick you up, we'll probably come in, have a drink, and then we'll get going. And she looked at me, (laughs) that little sassy girl. She goes, a drink? Sure. I love this because you then – you were telling us about this on the call earlier, the planning call, and you were like, that's too sassy. She shouldn't say that. You know, I, I think this is sort of a concern. I was like, yeah, definitely Megan's the problem. <laughs> yeah, she Megan is. noticing and saying this stuff, definitely the problem here. Uh, but I, I think that is pretty hilarious. And it also 
plays into something that I teased right before the break. Tonight is the Fox News Christmas party up in New York. And because I'm in D.C., I will not be attending, sadly. I can't make it. Seems like it's going to be a fun event. I've been at a few of them over the course of many years working at Fox at this point. I won't be at this one. You will be attending this one, Christine. And there was some question about how much you were going to be drinking. You said you were definitely not going to have. You ruled out vodka, or vodka as you call it. You ruled out red wine. seemed like you were leaving the door open to some other beverages or spirits. But there was a question, a debate among the team, how many drinks might you have? And I said you have a reputation to uphold in terms of having multiple drinks and maybe having some of our bosses sort of look on and chuckle and shake their heads. You seem to maybe be wanting to rehabilitate that image a little bit, but an open bar and a bunch of colleagues and some music in boozy December, that is a tricky combination for Cookie. It's so tough. It's just so tough. I want to just say, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to mingle. I'm going to have a drink. And then I'm going to head out. But that's just not what happens. <laughs> it really isn't. I'm going to try. Wyatt, do you think I could do it? Um, I don't know. I, I kind of wish I was there to, to <laughs> chaperone you. But I think I think you could maybe do it, depending on how, how the night goes. But well, Christine, I, I believe in you. You remember – I don't. But you remember a couple of weeks ago we had a big event in New York – with some of our partners and sponsors, and it was a very cool event, and they really made one of the TV studios look beautiful. It was a Fox News audio, Fox News radio event, and they had lovely past hors d'oeuvres and a sushi bar and an open bar as well. And I had not gone to the gym yet that day, so rather than drinking, I just abstained from drinking did what I had to do in terms of my responsibilities at this lovely event, then went to the hotel, worked out, and then went and got dinner. You said that you were going to have, like, maybe a drink or two and then go home. I find out the next day that it was well beyond that, and you, like, closed down the party at, like, the second or third bar with a bunch of colleagues. There were discussions or at least whispers of table dancing. You you denied that that was the case. Guy. But I feel like that's what maybe could be in the cards tonight that might be in store tonight after the christmas party there was no table dancing and i didn't shut a bar down well you shut the party down <laughs> i think you were like the last person there that's very possible yeah it's a little fuzzy. so that's sort of what i'm envisioning could very well be the case i i don't think so i i'm 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 really gonna try to change that a little bit okay we'll see well, i mean i'm not saying no drinks. And I think I just lost my chaperone. So I'm on my own here tonight. We'll see what happens. Oh, that's that's part of the problem, right? That is what kind of concerns me. Maybe we need to dispatch Wyatt up to New York at the last minute because adult supervision is needed. And we'll just find out what happened tomorrow. The problem is we don't have any eyewitnesses who are going to be at the party who work on the team who can fact-check whatever you claim you did or did not do. Hmm. All right, well, we'll the, think about this. The entire Fela team is good. I don't think the Kill Me team is going to be there. It's a little too late oh, Jimmy at night. Fela. Jimmy Fela will be there with bells on it. Right, kidding? but that's not going to help you get an accurate description of what happened. <laughs> that is a good point. That is, It's sort of like you know a bunch of 
hazy memories, perhaps. Let's put it that way. Not the most reliable crew. Not that they're dishonest, just like after it gets flowing a while, you know, Fox Across America starts drinking Across America and they bring Cookie along for the ride and there's no Wyatt to bring things under control. Yeah, this thing could this thing could break bad. I guess we'll find out. Stay tuned. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. Have a fabulous evening. We will talk to you then. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.